What is up, listeners? Welcome to Up and Over. And for those of you who are new here, we want to say thank you for stopping by. We hope you stay a while. We are your hosts. I'm Matt. And I'm Blake. And uh, yeah, we talk soccer quite a bit. Right now we're in a little bit of a leg and segment of women's national team. And we do want to take a moment for our older listeners and thank you for your patience. Between graduate school interviews, losing power in the Texas blackouts, to finishing my thesis as a master's student, it's been a crazy busy time of the year over the last month or two. And uh, Blake and I want to do do we want to do our due diligence uh, by putting out quality of episodes rather than quantity. Um, so yes, thank you for your patience. Your time is precious, and the fact that you spend time listening to us is something we can't thank you enough for. And with that being said, let's get back to our mini-series, right? Yeah, let's get to it. Uh, on this week of Up and Over, we are going to dive into our next installment of the U.S. Women's National Team mini-series in regards to their fight for equal pay. Today, we're going to peer into the players' union who represents them and compare the collective bargaining agreements of both the men's national team and women's national team to see what agreements the USSF, the U.S. Soccer Federation, has made with both national teams. We must first say that these collective bargaining agreements are from around 2017, and the U.S. Women's National Team Agreement expires at the end of 2021. Additionally, I personally must say that finding the PDF of these collective bargaining agreements was really a pain, (laughs) almost a hopeless endeavor, um, until I randomly stumbled upon a Sports Illustrated article that some odd reason had the hyperlinks to the PDFs that we had long searched for of both the current U.S. Women's National Team collective bargaining agreement, which we might also interchange with the term CBA, and the U.S. Men's National Team CBA, um, yeah, their most recent ones. It's important to take a look at both the collective bargaining agreements to see if and how they are worded differently between the men's national team and women's national team. These distinctions are likely part of the reason for the issues that have arisen with the women's national team in their lawsuit for equal pay. So analyzing both agreements can provide us insight to what currently is an issue and what we hope may change in the wording to hopefully allow the women's national team to progress with their next collective bargaining agreement. So yeah, let's uh, dive into the structure of the players associations, how their union is organized and who represents the players. Um, So yeah, the players associations constructed of up of, uh, you guessed it, the players themselves. Um, Both the men's and women's teams uh, have elected their respective representatives for their teams within their teams themselves. Um, And the U.S. men's reps, at at least the most recent update list I could find, it it may have changed since, but um, the men's team's representatives at this point in time are Michael Bradley, Brad Guzan, Zach Steffen, Will Trapp, DeAndre Yedlin, and as a young player rep, Tyler Adams. Um, Comparatively, the U.S. women's national team reps are fewer, but still hold comparable and equal roles to the services they need to perform. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn, Kelly O'Hara, and Sam Mewis. I do kind of find it interesting that the men's team has a young player rep, which I imagine is kind of like fostering into the system so they can get their feet on the ground versus the women's national team only has three. Um, Not that that really matters towards one thing or another, just how they choose to do it. still kind of interesting that there isn't a young player rep. Um, I suppose there maybe isn't quite the same player pool to work with or depth of squad well the squad in the women's team is very deep but you know what i'm saying right blake it's just kind of interesting how they how the numbers compare between the men's and women's team yeah and i noticed too like the women's national team all three of those names are mainstays for the women's national team but then the men's national team you have will trap who i'm not sure if he'll get another call up um right michael bradley is 
for all practical purposes, out of the picture of the men's national team. He's as is Brad, Guz- Brad, Guzan, is Brad Guzan, essentially, and DeAndre Yedlin. Um, not that he wouldn't get a call up, but you know, on this current current state of things, might not choose to. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, I I would think and, though that the women's national team would have a young player rep. Um, although that so, might be a that might be a function of how this CBA is actually structured, you know. Because be. I mean, we're going to dive into the nitty gritty of that soon. But last piece is on these representative. Um, positions, these reps are player elected to establish the terms of the collective bargaining agreement with USSF. Um, Finding the player reps, yeah, I'm going to just kind of recap here. Finding the player reps was easy. Finding the collective bargaining agreement was not. Don't fret. We found it. We're going to go through it today. And what kind of a podcast would we be if we didn't do the research properly? You best believe we took the finest comb to the internet to find these documents, which were hidden in that obscure Sports Illustrated article. Yeah. So to wrap things up in this introduction, remember that, folks, Up and Over isn't some Facebook anti-vax Karen group that doesn't actually do their research. Matt, we're getting getting a little bit into that color commentary that we were talking about earlier here. I said what I said, and I'm okay with that. All right, so now we're going to dive into the nitty-gritty of these collective bargaining agreements. Um, We have both the women's and men's teams agreements, but we're only going to really take the men's agreement as a comparative piece to a primary focus today on the women's national team's collective bargaining agreement. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth, but we're mainly stressing on that angle of what the women's Um, national team bargaining agreement is. There's lots of details, but today we're focused on the pay structure. We previously spoke on playing conditions and uh, travel. We're going to save those for future episodes when we want to bring out those fine details again. So today we're just going to be talking about more or less the benefits and the pay structure for tournaments strictly from a USSF standpoint. And yeah, so that's where we're going to start today. Um, In Article 7, below Article 7 in the Women's National Team CBA, it states a game roster appearance fee. So you're getting paid per play um, or just being on the roster for that matter. And it's kind of convoluted. Blake will offer more detail, but at a rough sense, it says non-contracted women's national team players shall be paid the higher game appearance fee beginning with their eighth career roster appearance for the women's national team. And additional to that, they have um, new tournament bonuses. So if there's a newly formed tournament across like international uh, teams, their pay structure to that um, is going to be different based on, you know, you have to understand what kind of money is gathered in. But upon there being a new tournament and the bonuses being received, if the women's national team begins participating in any new international tournaments during the term of this agreement in which there is an opportunity for the Federation to generate revenue, the parties, so men, the women's national team and USSF, shall meet in good faith to discuss a bonus structure for those tournaments. That's pretty, (laughs) those words can be bent one way or another, but to offer some um, hard numbers and some uh, quantitative value to these statements. Blake, you want to kind of jump in with what you found? Yeah, looking at, I'll just start by saying the women's pay structure is it's confusing okay there's there's a a, there's a contracted player versus a non-contracted player and then there's like uh allocated players versus non-allocated players that has to deal with the nwsl so essentially there's four categories um four groups of of uh varying pay structures for the women's team that starts with a women's national team contracted 
and NWSL allocated player. So that means a contracted player is going to get 100000 as their salary. And the allocation is depending on the tier, which I'm not going to get really into, but the allocation for the NWSL, meaning that USSF pays that player's NWSL salary is between $67,500 and $62,500. Now, that's one, right? So contracted, allocated. Then there's non-contracted, allocated. A non-contracted, allocated U.S. Women's National Team player is not going to get the 100000 base compensation salary that a contracted player does but then the USSF pays their NWSL salary of the 67.5 or the 62.5. Then there's the contracted but non-allocated player, which means they're going to get the 100,000 base compensation from the women's national team or and none actually none of the the NWSL salary because they're non-allocated. Then there's the non-contracted, non-allocated player, which is not going to get any money uh, from as a as a base compensation. They're not going to get the hundred thousand uh, from the USSF for being the contracted player, and they're not going to get the NWSL salary from the USSF. And basically, they're just relying on on appearance fees, right? Playing in the game and winning the game or drawing the game. So does this, does this structure exist between USSF and MLS? No, no, it does not. And why is that the case? Not fine details, but you know, just break it down real rough here. Part of the reason is it would have been, as we've seen with the women's leagues hard for, uh, the NWSL to make it through its first three or four seasons without the the help from USSF. So we we hope, at least Matt, I think you and I hope that the NWSL is able to move away from uh, uh, some sort of monetary reliance from the USSF. Um, that's that's part of it, uh, and we've we've talked about more. Was there something else you wanted to mention there, Matt? No, I, I don't. I, that's pretty much it. The MLS isn't necessarily tied directly to USSF, um, and whereas NWSL, we're we're bringing up these uh, details because it's part of the. It's under that umbrella of the U.S. Women's National Team. So where the MLS might have their own collective bargaining agreements with those players. You don't necessarily see that the NWSL has their own separate, maybe not as strictly, uh, collective bargaining agreements with the players because a lot of that is within this women's national team collective bargaining agreement. So not only are these women's players kind of designating pay rights or structures and uh, playing conditions, et cetera, for the women's national team players, but a lot of that bleeds into the National Women's Soccer League. So I just kind of wanted to touch on that. Um, but yeah, based on those four <laughs> easily confused Groups, subsections yeah. to someone just looking at it, how, how, how does this actually break down into numbers? So let's just say if you are a contracted, allocated women's team player, you're going to get 160 plus. Okay. Uh, average it out to 165, 165,000 from your base salary of the women's national team and NWSL. Okay. Now, non contracted, allocated, you're going to get 65,000 average between the two tiers. Uh, and then contracted, non allocated, you're going to get the 100,000 non-contract, non-allocated, completely up to uh, just the the USSF paying 
the per game appearance fee. And I'll go into those now. Um, so the, the per game appearance fee from, it's actually on a, a structure for this, for the current CBA that expires at the end of this year, 2017 to 2018, the per game appearance fee was, uh, 3250 2019 to 2020 was $3,500. Uh, 2021 is $3,750. And then there's a, a separate appearance category for World Cup appearances. That's $4,500. Um, and then that is only if you're a non-allocated or sorry, a non-contracted player. See, I, I even get confused on this because it's just, it's weird. So those are the amounts that you get per game for an appearance if you're a non-contracted women's national team player. Every player is subject to uh, the friendly win, draw, lose bonuses, I guess you could call them. Um, if the women's team beats a FIFA ranked team one through four or Canada, then they'll get $8,500. If they draw, they'll get $1,750. If they lose, they get zero extra money. Now, if that rank is five through eight, a win drops to 6,500. So $2,000 less uh, draw drops to uh, 1250 that's $500 less lose is still zero before oh, they don't have to they don't have to pay if they lose right <laughs> yeah <God. laughs> um, if the rank is if the FIFA rank for the women's team opponent is uh, nine plus so nine or higher they'll get 5250 additional for winning they don't get any money for draws or tying and no money for losing. Now, I, I I broke down the lose just because that's when comparing it to the men's team, the men's team gets money for losing games. But so yeah, this is now we're gonna just shift over to a similar subsection of the men's collective bargaining agreement. Um, so they also have a subsection that's breakdown of pay structure. And it states that it takes up another twenty percent. Here, of, I'll, I'll let me let me explain yeah. this because the the men's CBA that we got our hands on was essentially from twenty eleven to twenty eighteen, uh, and then it it was kind of separated out between the two World Cup cycles. So there's like eleven through fourteen, and then there's some changes to numbers for fifteen to. 18. So now that that might make a little bit more sense to you now, Matt, uh, what you're about to say, which is that the men's document, uh, there's the, the, the breakdown of the pay structure takes up approximately 20% of the entire document for, for 2011 to 2014. Um, and then there's an additional graph for the, the, next mm. world cup series which basically across the board shows 125 percent increase in wages for that world cup cycle from 2015 to 2018 so they they laid it out in detail for 2011 to 2014 and then they broke it down in a simple graph with 125 percent increase to almost every single part of the wages for the men's team um Okay, so yeah, here, I'll just repeat that because it was my section. It's increased by 125% um, based on what it was in 2011 between that and then in 2018, if I'm gathering that right, the wages. Yeah, that's right, Matt. Good job. So you, you're welcome, <laughs> listeners. This has uh, been uh, reading charts with Matt and Blake. <laughs> how, do the, how do the actual numbers? Let's, let's get to Blake, just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> So where the men's team is different is that there's no, again, there's no like strict relationship between the MLS and USSF like there is between the NWSL and the USSF. Uh, MLS doesn't, 
there's there's nothing where MLS you know doesn't have to pay a player because they're contracted with the with the men's national team. So um, there's no base salary for the men's team. It's all uh, appearance fees and then game bonuses, tournament bonuses, etc. So um, makes sense as far as not having a base salary because a lot of these players are getting paid out the wazoo um, from the clubs that they are associated with MLS or abroad. Um, yeah. We're yeah. Yeah. We're not the, just we're talking, talking top the, five European leagues are getting paid out. the wazoo. This is still an MLS. Low, yeah. 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 We're talking the low end of easily millions or, or like upper hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It's, it's been so a long time since we've looked it up, Matt. I mean, like when we first started the the podcast, I think was maybe the last time we looked it up. But like the minimum salary in the MLS is like eighty thousand, something like that. Whereas in the NWSL, the max salary currently for a non allocated player is fifty thousand. Six, yeah, sixty thousand now. Yeah. Um, so uh, quite quite a difference there. And hopefully, as the NWSL <laughs> grows, that changes. But back to the numbers. Um, the appearance fees. The appearance fees. Uh, so, actually, it's it's even more so just determined on a win, draw, or loss. Uh, so, if the U.S. men's national team beats uh, a FIFA-ranked team 1 through 10, or Mexico, um, they get $14,100. For a draw, it's sixty five hundred, and for a loss, it's four thousand. For rank eleven to twenty five, it's ten thousand for a win, five thousand for a draw, four thousand for a loss, and FIFA rank twenty six or more is seventy five hundred, five thousand, and four thousand. So wait, they get no? They can lose and still get paid every time. They can lose and still get paid every time. Now, part of that is because you have. A lot of the women's national team players are contracted with the women's national team or are allocated. But then you also come across those few, um, the the handful or two of players that are non-contracted, non-allocated, and um, are really just not getting much money for per game appearance fees or winnings. Um, and Thank- thankfully, thankfully, the women's team seldom loses. So yeah, they're making right. money. Albeit much, and I'm not discl- not not saying that's an excuse to be paying that disparaged wage, but at le- it's kind of like, well, at least they're not going to walk away with nothing more like nine times out of ten. More often than not. Um, so with no base salary for the men's, uh, right? They'll they'll still get some money for losing a game, but you also look at the the what the women's team has to play essentially in order. to to get money for winning um the men's ranks right tiers go 1 through 10 11 through 25 and then 26 or more the women's is 1 through 4 5 through 8 9 plus so the i i almost put that as like a for the women's side you have higher expectations but because you're essentially forcing them to schedule games against better competition all the time. And you see it over and over. They play Netherlands. They play Japan. They play this team, that team. Sweden, England. Yeah. Right. Top 10 teams all the time. That's what their game schedule is loaded with. And the U.S. is playing Northern Ireland, Wales, El Salvador, Part of that recently so, is pandemic, but yeah, it's just lower grade teams. Um, I guess uh, there's other like bits for like the men's team, the Gold Cup, Copa America. The women's team has the um, She Believes Tournament, the Four Nations Tournament. I'm not going to really go into too many details there, but another area to, to maybe point out is World Cup qualification and world cup pay right so the women's team um for winning a world cup qualifying match gets three thousand dollars 
they get $500 if it's a draw, and they get $0 for losing. The men's team, now remember in 2011 to 2018, there's a different structure to World Cup qualifying than what we have now in what is well known as the hex, where essentially you play each team two times. The first set of those matches, uh, if you won on the men's team, you got $12,500, draw was 6000 loss 4000 In the second set, uh, to win, increase 2000 so you'd have 14500 draw was 8000 loss still 4000 So that just seems like a huge difference there. 3000 for a win on the women's side compared to 12500 or 14500 for world and i'm sure this has nothing to do with does this have something to do with viewership Mm, i don't know matt does the women's national team have less viewership than the men's team i think we kind of touched on this uh previously but actually in in the last three or four years we've seen relatively equal viewership between the women's and men's team so um i'm gonna go ahead and say no yeah, it's just it's just kind of a very. I mean, in theory, USSF is has one account in which they split and pay to whatever source that needs it. Um. So yeah, the the separation of that pay, it's not. These aren't bonuses, right? These are just you've played, you get paid. Yep. I mean, the bonus, I guess, would be not losing and you go up in that pay rank. But where the men have that baseline of 4000 for a loss is non-existent for the women. The, the, the men's of- team is getting more for losing a qualification match than the women's team gets for winning. Okay, that's that's asinine to me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty... That's pretty ridiculous. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's that's more or less how these uh, women's teams, players, structure, and contracts are broken down, what they get paid, what they've been getting paid. Hold on, Matt. How that's down to it. Let me touch on the World Cup numbers, not just the qualifying numbers. Just, just real quick. Okay. So as a qualification bonus for the women's team, so just for qualifying for the World Cup, making it through the qualifying and into the World Cup, uh, 20 of the players, because it breaks it down by like player pool, are going to get $37,500. So that's the qualification bonus. And then making the roster for the World Cup is the exact same. That roster bonus is $37,500. On the men's side... To make qualification for the 2014 World Cup, uh, there was $2 million paid to the player pool. And uh, I broke this down based on a 20, uh, breaking that $2 million up to a 23-man roster. That means a qualification bonus if every single dime of it went to the players of $86,957. That is uh, roughly... more for qualifying for the World Cup for the men's team than the women's team. Now, on the men's side, for making the World Cup roster, it's $55,000. That's just under $20,000 more than the women's side. And uh, we'll jump back over to the women's side. Um, Each match, right, I already went over the World Cup appearance fee of $4,500. and then there's not really any other info on, okay, well, what if we win World Cup match? What if we lose? What if yada, yada? There's just extra bonuses tied to if they get third, second, or first place, which respectively is 25000 50000 or 110000 per player. Now, on the men's side, remember how I said that their CBA – like 20% of it was a a really in-depth breakdown. Um, Yeah, that's because of 
things like this, right? The the World Cup is structured so that you're divvied up into groups first, then you make it out of the group round by you know getting the most points or the second most points in your group. You go on to the bracket stage. Well, um, for playing a match in the World Cup for the men, you get fifty five hundred dollars, and then for each point that you get in the first round, which is the group stage, USSF pays an additional $175,000 to the player pool. And assuming that every dime of that goes to the players, that breaks down to $7,609 in a 23-man roster. Okay. Now, then there's bonuses for advancing to the second round, which breaks down to 3.6 3.6 million to the player pool and 156 plus thousand dollars to each player. And then they get a bonus for advancing to the quarters and the semis. And then for placing third, f- second, or first uh, is per player, respectively, 43,500. Uh, 217,000 and 326,000. So significantly different numbers, higher numbers on the men's side. Yeah. So it's, it's on paper how diverted and like dissected and apart these sorts of pay structures are between the men's and women's, um, current and respective bargaining agreements. And I, I think this is an appropriate time to kind of finish this little middle portion with this quote from um, time.com. Is it time magazine? I think it, I think it was from yeah time, time magazine on the U S women's national team, equal pay lawsuit. And it says, quote, Women's national team players are paid differently because they specifically asked for and negotiated a completely different contract than the men's national team, despite being offered and rejecting a similar pay-to-play agreement during the past negotiations. That's what the Federation said. According to the statement, the women's national team's agreement includes, among other things, guaranteed annual salaries, Excuse me. Medical and dental insurance, paid child care assistance, paid pregnancy and parental leave, severance benefits, multiple bonuses, benefits that the U.S. soccer says are, excuse me, uh, not provided to the men's national team. And kind of further reiterating this, the U.S. women's national team spokesperson, Molly Levinson, disputed U.S. soccer's claims in a statement to the Associated Press and quote states, in the most recent CBA negotiations, USSF repeatedly said that equal pay was not an option regardless of pay structure. USSF proposed a pay-to-play structure with less pay across the board. Levinson said, In every instance for a friendly or competitive match, the women players were offered less pay than their male counterparts, which we just kind of laid out for you guys in the last uh, 15 minutes here based on looking at it quite plainly between both agreements. And this is the very definition of gender discrimination. And of course the players rejected it, but here we are USSF continued to kind of shoot that narrative. So um, a lot of what I believe USSF is doing is kind of a smear campaign to at least make it seem like they're being victimized where they're really kind of coming across with a ton of faults. The numbers speak for themselves. And this isn't just, FIFA allocated bonuses. This is USSF's decision to um, break these player player payments down the way they have. Um, their excuse stating about childcare assistance, paid pregnancy, etc., I think is just kind of a common employer benefit that can't really be used against. Albeit the men's don't quote unquote don't receive it, which they apparently don't. But you know. Um, I'm sure if they ask for it, they could get it, you know, Um, this, we're going to pause here. We're going to let that ruminate. When we come back, we're going to kind of speak a little more philosophically between what the men's team has stated in support of the women's team, why they aren't necessarily, or, or have they interacted with each other? 
um, in discussions about how these new agreements will be structured. Because, like we said, the women's team one ends at the end of 2021. Ruminate, right, Matt. That's a uh, that's a big word. I like it. Yeah, so, I don't know, I, Matt, I just kind of have a, a strong, maybe it's not that strong of an opinion, but I, I have an opinion on that, right? And I, I looked through the, the men's, um, the men's national team, CBA, and in terms of benefits, all I really saw was workers' comp, like, I, I don't recall seeing anything such as health, dental, vision, insurances, etc. Um, now, I think it's it's fair to say that some of the the difference in pay could be attributed to the benefits that the women's team receives, uh, right? If if the women's team is is getting more benefits, such as insurance, uh, et cetera, et cetera, like it, it makes sense that maybe salary is a little bit lower because you're getting these added benefits, but. What I think, I, I I guess take 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 Let's this. It, let me put okay, it, yeah. let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. If you're saying that they're getting paid less than the men's players based on the benefit structure that aren't being awarded or allotted to the men's players, that's kind of like explaining to because this pay disparity doesn't just isn't just a product of. <laughs> men's and women's soccer. It bleeds into any facet right. of society most of the time, um, if not all the time. So it would be almost like saying to USSF's like, you know, board of directors or just general employees that work for USSF. Oh, you're, you're getting benefits. Um, but you're going to get paid more because you don't need the benefit. Like you quote unquote, don't need the benefits. So, but we're going to pay you less because you're also getting maternity yeah, leave. And, and that's the biggest. That's, that's like, just absurd. This, okay. I think, I think it'd be inexcusable for the USSF not to provide like maternity adoption leave just because of like the physical toll that pregnancy and childbirth takes on a, a woman's body. And then as well as forming the mother child bond, regardless of, uh, of adoption or birthing, right? Uh, but if anything, it's just like if you're if you're discussing benefits like you would to any employee as an employer, then in counterpart, then you need to provide those to the men's players in theory, in theory. Granted, the men's players receive those through their clubs. But, you know, like if you're speaking to those terms based on what is and isn't awarded to a certain person based on how the contract's written up. And you're talking benefits. You're, do, am I making any sense with what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I, I think, I think I understand what. Not nah, like I, I think I get what you're putting down. Um, I'm picking it up. What you're putting down, that is what I is what I'm trying to say. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, and and hopefully this is the same thing you're saying is that something like maternity leave i think weighs less in an argument when stating that the the benefits received by the women's national team compared to the men's national team offsets uh, that's that's kind of what i'm yep. trying to say because uh, like that maternity leave i think is something that is just a, a staple of a, a benefits package if you're oh especially if you're a woman like some companies even offer paternity leave which great but like i i think it would be absolutely inexcusable for the ussf not to provide that not only that but you're it's it's a physical game and the toll that training and the game takes on bodies like granted to come back from uh pregnancy to get your body back in shape these are world-class athletes so so in terms of like physical specimens you're looking at you know the the best of the best but 
to come back from injury, pregnancy, whatever it is, it takes a lot of work and and to essentially require, I'm pretty sure what I saw was like that it's more or less done in three months unless like the doctor of the 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 player of the woman's player specifically like gives medical reasons as to why she's not going to be able to make it back within a three-month period to resume her national team duties that's like pretty much the only only chance that you know they're not expected to make it back within that time frame um it you know injuries pregnancy it's a lot to come back from i i just i think there's no argument in stating that, well, they get maternity leave and all these other benefits. And so that's why there's this offset. If anything, the men's team should then counterpoint that with saying, well, if we want paternity leave, like why? Like, I think, you know, there, it's not a matter of lessening pay. And I feel like and this is where we're going to shift gears. The men's team has voice their support of the women's team. But as we, I'd say, all know, actions speak louder than words. And the women's team still sitting where they're at. It'll be very interesting to see how these CBAs are rewritten at the end of 2021. And this kind of brings me to this uh, forward-moving point. The players' associations, constructed of... Um, previously stated the men's national team players and the women's national team players have their separate unions. Those are the unions that structure their collective bargaining agreements, which we've laid out to you a small portion of what those are. Somewhere along the lines, and it seems that it was USSF insisting they can't do this equal pay, and Blake will kind of wrap things up today with a nice quote regarding that um the women's national team wrote the deal that they are currently under which has clear pay disparity whereas the men's team is clearly getting paid much more and if they're stating their support of the women's team's efforts that brings me to personally thinking, where's the conversation going from there? Like, are they in contact with each other? When they sit down at the table with United States Soccer Federation to strike these agreements, they're clearly done at different times, but you're wearing the crest. It's the same crest, men's and women's. One has more stars over it than the other. Um, <laughs> but hell yeah. You have a legal representative. You have a legal representative at the at the table with those players, but those legal reps are different between the men's and women's teams. Granted, they're helping um, lead the conversation with USSF to strike these agreements for pay structure. It almost makes me wonder if if there were efforts to have those legal reps sit down between the men's and women's teams before going to write these agreements to uh, run the numbers. Cause I'm sure, I mean, and it has shown if it was off of pay ratings, the women's team would be making substantially more than they are, but that was not what was written to their agreement. And it appears that the USSF was kind of really pushing back against allowing that probably because they knew that they would be having to pay more. Um, But at that, at that point, if the representatives of the men's and women's unions had spoken and hardlined, I'm wondering if this agreement would have been struck better for the women's national team, not to say that isn't something that happened, but it's really unclear what the communication between these teams are. Yeah. Do you agree? And we right we don't know if if there was even a single sit down we don't know if they did sit down and and it just you know ussf was completely uh there was no movement by the ussf to to budge on that at all like we don't know but based on what we've we've researched and seen and read and heard it just it doesn't seem like there was much communication 
between between the two uh, unions. And the the men's if the men's national team expresses and voices their support, I think they need to start putting their feet on the ground and actively being a participant because if there's going to be if they support equal pay, they're likely to be the ones that it's gonna it's gonna affect their CBA as well. It just inherently will. So they should also be a part of this thoroughly. They're, they're, it, appear, it appears that they aren't probably because they don't believe they can voice their opinion, but their absence of actions almost seems as if they don't expect it to happen. So they're just going to continue going forth the way they have. If they really want to make a difference or at least really show their support, they're going to have to put their foot at their seat at the table to rewrite this CBA, not only for, not only for themselves, but, you know, kind of level the table or at least work together. And heck, it might result in both teams getting more pay than they currently do. Could. It could. I, it. This is way too simplistic, but why, why can't we just have a single collective bargaining agreement for U.S. national team players? Exactly. That's why I've been kind of curious as why they're separate and why these conversations maybe aren't being had between the two. It would almost make sense for them to sit down and strike that agreement at yeah. the same time. There's a lot of intricacies that that go into it and I can understand why there are separate but um it, yeah, it just why why can't we why can't we just have a single collective bargaining agreement? There may be some variations between men's and women's, but if overall the the CBA is the same between the two falls under one CBA, then I think we see a lot more equality, uh, not just in pay, but, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of working conditions and, and uh, the other facets of of the women's national team lawsuit. So. And like, if they sit down and strike this agreement together, men's players could get paternity leave while the women's still maintains maternity leave. Um, this might, perhaps this might be something that changes at the end of this year and, uh, could even continue on. So given the hopeful separation of NWSL from us women's national soccer team, um, for that stability in that league. So that might be something that happens down the line, but I, yeah, the, (laughs) It's a bad look. It's been a bad look, and it continues to be a bad look for U.S. Soccer yeah. Federation. And I guess, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot more to state on the it's, matter. Um, we've kind of laid everything out, and I think, Blake, if you yeah. want to kind of take it away yeah, from just, this point. We'll just end on this, and I, I want to preface this by saying that the current CBA for the women's team uh, right, runs 2017 to 2021 ends. December 30th or 31st of, of 2021. When the lawsuit first started, they were in the previous uh, CBA. Um, and we've seen some changes from the, the previous CBA to the current CBA. Uh, but it's not enough. And, and so I'll, I'll go ahead and read this quote from the Washington Post. U.S. women's national team players have previously said publicly they believe this was the best agreement they could get without going on strike. But I think it's important to note that the women's national team sees themselves as role models on so many levels uh, and and that they realize currently without going on strike, this is the best we're going to get. And it's it's one little stepping stone to where we want to be. It's improvement. It's not enough and it needs to come faster. But apart from just fighting for equal pay for women athletes and for, for women's soccer, they also understand that being on television and having games and, and camps and everything not being on strike, right? They're they're also being role models for any young girl who gets to see them, right? And and 
any any young, any person, young person, someone for that someone matter, to aspire, yeah. right? Just mm-hmm. a great role model, and I I think all of these women are fantastic role models, um, and and they recognize that. I, I think that's extremely introspective, um, and it, it it's just yeah. unfortunate that this is the best we can get at this time. We're gonna take it because we don't want to go on strike. We want to continue to put ourselves, our, our images out there and, and be a role model in a different sense. Yep. They're, 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 uh, being the bigger person to the situation at hand. That's, I think the best way I could, I imagine wrapping that kind of quote up in the yeah. manner at which they've chosen to go with the agreement to remain that role model rather than being on strike and likely in the dark for an indefinite period where they're missing a lot of opportunities to continue to inspire the dominance and young, younger generations of soccer players, both uh, boys and girls. Um, yeah. So yeah, this has kind of been, um, we know it's been a while since we've gone through anything as a podcast, but this is the next step in our episode series of women's national team fight for equal pay. We um, are going to continue to work with this collective bargaining agreement and comparative structure down in the next couple episodes, um, but they all, all have their own respective needs to touch on, so we're not going to touch on those today. Um, but as a whole, we want to thank you for listening. It's been, I think, has it been over a month since our last episode? So yeah, if you're I think so. Yeah, if, you're, if you're listening now, we're... Uh, hoping to be a little bit more consistent. Again, we want to put down quality over quantity. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. This has been Up and Over. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at underscore up and over. Or on Instagram at MBFC underscore up and over. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to hit us up on those platforms or you can send an email to up and over one seven at gmail.com thanks for listening everyone we'll catch you next time <laughs>